Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. We're going to read now in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be reading from verse 11 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, just like we did last Sunday. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Father, we come and we ask your blessing on this time and your word. We ask for your spirit to be working in us, to help us as we study. Lord, as we have worked through this section, as we continue to work through it, we recognize that something has gone terribly wrong here in Galatia, that there are people who are drifting away from the truth of the gospel and while we recognize that this is a historical account, the reality is, is that every single one of us in this room are just as susceptible, just as potentially capable of doing that same thing. And so this message is not just aimed at them, it's aimed at us. 
And so I pray that you will use your word to encourage us to persevere in the faith, to remain committed and faithful to the purity of the gospel no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week's sermon, as well as this week's, I guess, reminds me of something, and that is of the importance of expositional preaching. In case you don't know what expositional preaching is, it is a particular style of preaching, and in case you did not recognize this, there are multiple styles of preaching that are available out in the the marketplace of churches today. Just as an example of one other type, um, topical preaching would probably be one of the more common and popular styles of preaching available in many churches today. Um, A topical sermon is where a pastor or preacher chooses a particular topic, whatever the case may be, and they make the focus of the sermon on that particular topic. Now, that topic could be very broad, like, you know, just love, or it could be also very specific, like how to love your family, spouse, kids, whatever, when they aggravate you to death. So it can go any possible direction. And, And I hear sometimes people who know a little bit about preaching but really don't know a lot about preaching, that you know, they'll hear someone talk about topical preaching, like, oh, well, topical preaching is not very good. I would disagree with you. Topical preaching can actually be extremely helpful. I use it from time to time in order to address specific subjects or topics that we need to look at throughout maybe the entire scripture to understand how they work and what God has to say about them. That said, I don't necessarily believe, just based on my own philosophy of ministry, that a regular steady diet of topical preaching is healthy for a church congregation. Because inevitably, when topical preaching is the one and only kind of preaching you have, you're going to hear sermons each and every week that are more reflective of the pastor's personal preferences, opinions, or interests than you will necessarily of the scriptures themselves. I have joked in the past, though actually there's not much joking in it, that in one of the churches we attended when I was a kid, I was a teenager at this time, when um, we attended several, but in one of them in particular, it seemed to me that every week the sermon was somehow about Bill Clinton. Like how he was the worst president, the worst person perhaps this world had ever seen. The pastor in question in this particular example really disliked Bill Clinton. And so it didn't really matter what we were talking about. Somehow we were going to end up on him. And here I was as an unbelieving high schooler, an unbelieving teenager, right? I know nothing. I, I'm, I'm lost in my sins. And on top of that, I'm, a, I'm an ignorant teenager, right? Amen, parents of teens? Amen? Yes, thank you. Uh, here I am, you know, with all that against me. And even I know at that particular moment that that's not how preaching should be done. It shouldn't always somehow end up at the same subject every single week, regardless of where we're at. And, and while that example might be a bit extreme, It highlights, I think, for us why a steady diet of topical preaching, again, is unhealthy for churches because the pastor or whoever is doing it is going to tend to focus on the things that interest them or the things that they have particular preferences about, and so that's all you're ever going to hear. Expositional preaching, though, on the other hand, forces you to walk through a text in great detail regardless of whether or not you happen to be interested in the details that are in front of you. Um, Expositional preaching, if you'd like a definition, it's my own. It's a commitment to let the text speak for itself absolutely no matter what. So whatever comes, whatever you run into, whether you like it or don't like it, whether you want to talk about it or not talk about it, you're going to deal with it. It's going to be there. It's in front of you. You've got to address it because you are going to let the text speak for itself no matter what. And personally speaking, I think that's somewhat on display in both last week and this week's sermon 
as we work through this chronology of Paul's ministry that he lays out for us here in chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10, without meaning any disrespect at all to God's word, I doubt there are very many of us in this room who would say, man, going through Paul's chronology here is the most fascinating, amazing, convicting passage of scripture that we have ever dealt with. I, I would not personally say that, and you probably wouldn't as well, but that said, it is a part of God's inspired word. And it is a critical part of the larger argument that Paul is making here in this letter. And so for the moment, while it may not be our, for any of us our preferred study this morning, it is important to us, which brings us back to what I said at the very beginning, that this is why expositional preaching is so important. Because whether or not we're interested in it, we can't just skip details or sections that we want to based on our own personal whim. It forces us to live out both in our preaching and in our listening what we say we believe that all scripture, all of it, is inspired. Every detail, every, every itinerary note, every last bit of it is inspired, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So that said, let's pick up where we left off, left off last Sunday. What, what we have here in this section is an attempt by Paul to defend the independence and authority of his apostleship, and therefore, by extension, the independence and authority of his gospel. These false teachers that are troubling the Galatians with this new gospel, they have apparently mounted a concentrated attack on the apostle Paul himself. And this personal attack seems to be the foundation upon which they base their alternate gospel. Uh, and so in writing to the Galatians, he decides that the very first thing he needs to do is to defend himself, thus the text that I read for us this morning. There are two components to this section that I just read, two components to his defense. The first, as I explained last week, is a chronology, right, where he's going to walk through almost an itinerary of portions of his ministry, where he went, when he went there, who he saw, who he didn't see, that kind of stuff. The second component is, is that intermingled throughout that chronology are a number of these little pointed statements and, and theological comments that are, it tells a great deal about the nature of the personal attack that Paul is experiencing, as well as about the false gospel that is being proclaimed by the false teachers. And so as I started to explain last Sunday, what we've done is I've separated those two components. I hope that's a good idea. We'll find out maybe when it's all done. But I took last Sunday, and I'm going to take this week to walk through the chronology just to help you understand the details of what's going on. And then starting next week, we'll go back and look at these comments and statements that he makes along the way in an attempt to piece together finally and completely what exactly is going on and what Paul is trying to do here in this letter. Now, last week, we worked through Galatians 1, 11 to 24, and we compared it to the book of Acts in an attempt to correlate the material. And as we did, we built a timeline, if you recall, that looked like this. This is where we left off last week. And so if you weren't here, I'll just walk you through this very, very quickly. Paul begins talking about his pre-conversion life in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. As we looked at the book of Acts, we see that that correlated very nicely with the information given in Acts 7 and 8, passages like Philippians 3, those kind of things. Next, he talked about his conversion in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. That's the first big event that's included there in the text. And you see that correlates with Luke's account in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 19. 
Paul then told us that after his conversion, he stayed in Damascus for a little bit, and then he went off to Arabia, and then he came back to Damascus. This is what he's talking about here in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to, or excuse me, 16 to 17. I didn't write it in my notes. Um, as you look, though, in the in the Acts account at Luke's retelling of the story, Luke doesn't mention the Arabia visit at all. He only focuses on Paul's time there in Damascus. And so it correlates with Acts 9, uh, verses 20 to 25. However, we have to remember as we're reading there in Acts 9, there's a gap of time that Luke simply just doesn't record for us. So just a good mental note. The next big event that occurs in Paul's is Paul's first visit, excuse me, to Jerusalem after his conversion there in Galatians 1, 18 to 20. Please note this is not his first visit to Jerusalem ever. We're talking about the first time he goes back after his conversion. And this was the first spot where there seemed to be some difficulty in correlating the material. And yet after we walk through everything, we saw that it really fits nicely with Luke's account in Acts 9, verses 26 to 29. And then finally... Both Galatians 1, 21 to 24, Acts 9, 30 to 31, Paul goes off to minister in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and everything seems to be kind of calm and happy and well. But now as we turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, we find that our task of correlating all this material has hit another little snag. The first thing we're given here is a time marker after 14 years. And if you were here last Sunday, you know that the Jews could count time one of two different ways. They could either count it from a starting point or they could count it in a continuum. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's using that starting point system where he gives you a beginning point that he begins to sort of judge everything from. So after three years, after six, nine, 12, it could be whatever. That's how I think he is counting his time here. And so the event that he's about to recount for us happens, I think, 14 years after his conversion, or about 11 years after his first visit to Jerusalem. And as you can see, this time Paul isn't alone. This time he is accompanied by, at the very least, Barnabas and Titus. And if you don't know who these guys are, I'll give you just a very, very, very brief, quick uh, explanation. Barnabas is, humanly speaking, the person who is most responsible for encouraging and helping Paul in the early days of his ministry. He's the one who goes with him to the Galatian provinces and ministers there in those four churches. And so this is someone they would be familiar with. And since Titus is specifically mentioned to the Galatians as well, I would assume that they knew him also. Titus is a young protege to Paul. Uh, he's mentioned numerous times in the New Testament letters in 2 Corinthians and, and in uh, Galatians 2 Timothy, if we're going to use uh, Trump's way of referring to the scriptures. And, and then, of course, there's a letter that is written to Titus called the book of Titus. And so these are at least, there's probably more, but at least two of Paul's companions uh, on this particular trip to Jerusalem. And as you can see here in verse 2, their visit seems to be prompted by some sort of revelation they receive. Now, Paul gives us no other detail about this revelation. Is it something the, the Lord revealed to him like directly, or did maybe he reveal it through someone else or someone's else, and it was sort of relayed to Paul? We just don't know. Paul also gives us at least part of what he did during this trip to Jerusalem. He set before the influential leaders in Jerusalem the gospel that he and Barnabas had been preaching and his co-workers had been preaching among the Gentiles in order to make sure that they were not preaching or ministering in vain. In other words, Paul's goal is to affirm that the same gospel he's communicating is the, the gospel that the Jerusalem leaders are communicating as well. Not that I think Paul really doubted this. 
I mean, he knew that he had received his gospel directly from Jesus. The, the Jerusalem leaders had at least claimed to receive their gospel directly from Jesus. So if both are getting their gospel directly from Jesus, you would assume they would be the same. So, so why is there this private meeting to compare gospels? Um, for the moment, I'll just say that the circumstances at play seem to make this the wise and right thing to do. And therefore, that's what Paul does. Now, as you look quickly, and I'm going to fly through this because I'm only dealing with chronology today. If you look through the rest of Galatians 2, 3 to 10, you see that the issue at hand seems to be whether or not circumcision is necessary for the Gentiles. Titus is given here as a test case in verse 3. He's not Jewish, Jewish, but he is a believer in Jesus. When Paul calls him Greek, it doesn't mean that he is from Greece. It just simply means that he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile of some sort. And the question is, does he need to be circumcised in order to be made right with God? Does he need to be circumcised in order to become one of God's people? And if you're confused as to why anyone would be asking that question, give me one more Sunday and you'll understand. But as you can see here in verse 3, the answer is no. Doesn't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. These questions, Paul tells us, are being asked because of false brothers who are trying to bring them into slavery. Slavery to what, you ask? Well, to the Old Testament law, which would require circumcision. Paul and Barnabas, though, and whoever else is with them didn't yield to their demands. When the influential leaders in Jerusalem hear Paul's gospel, they agree with him. They add nothing to Paul's message. On the contrary, when they see that Paul has been trusted with the gospel to the Gentile world, if you jump now to verse 9, James, either the half-brother of Jesus or the apostle, depending on our timing, James, Peter, and John give them the right hand of fellowship, send them out, only asking that they remember the poor, the very thing Paul says, that he was eager to do. Whew, that's the fastest you're ever going to see me go through a passage of Scripture right there, all right? I went through that really quick, and I know that's a lot of information. So why don't we put up a chart here, or the same information in chart form, in order to help us see it and understand it a little better. And I'm just going to point out a few details that we'll compare from section to section here. You'll notice that the location of this particular story is based in Jerusalem. The occasion is by revelation. We don't know, again, the details of that revelation, but somehow Paul receives a revelation from God that this is what he should do. Uh, the name participants in the story are, on the one hand, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. On the other hand, the Jerusalem side, you have Peter, James, and John. Uh, the issue at hand is circumcision of Gentile believers. The format is a private meeting between the, the ministry team and these, uh, these pillars. And then the result of the visit is that the pillars or these influential leaders, as Paul keeps referring to them, affirm his gospel. They extend the right hand of fellowship. They recognize their differing spheres of ministry, and they ask him to remember the poor. Okay, That's just a quick snapshot, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Got it? Okay. Because now our question is... How does this fit into the book of Acts? How do we correlate this in? Now, in your bulletin last Sunday, and one of those questions that we've been providing each week, which I hope you're taking advantage of and I will ask you about in a moment, I asked you to take some time to compare Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, with Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, and Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 29. I also asked you then to try to correlate the Galatians passage with only one of these other two passages, and now I'm about to ask a question that I will regret later. How many of you attempted to do that? I'm just curious. Less than the first service. This is going well. Thank you all. Um, this is my sad face. Well, um, 
You're going to have to do it now. Since you didn't do it beforehand, you're going to have to do it now. If you will, now turn to Acts chapter 9. Okay, I told you to get there in the beginning. Hold your place. Go to Acts 9. And if you remember from last time, we left off here in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, right? This is when everything seemed fine, everything's going well for the churches. And I want you now to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And you'll see now that Luke leaves Paul there in Syria and Cilicia, and he turns his attention to Peter. In fact, if you will just very quickly skim from Acts chapter 9, verse 32, just look at headings or whatever you need to do, all the way to Acts chapter 11, verse 18. That's a big section of scripture just to quickly skim through. If you do that, you will notice that the person who is primarily in focus throughout that section is the apostle Peter. Um, it's on his time with Cornelius, who was a Gentile, how Cornelius is saved, and then he comes back and he tells the Jews in Jerusalem that Cornelius, a Gentile, has been saved, and now there's a, kind of some after effects of that, and some discussion that goes on, some confusion between some of the people about how God is working. It's not until Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that Luke begins to turn his story back towards Paul's direction. If you look now at Acts 11, verses 19 to 26, you'll read about some of what's going on there in Antioch, the church in Antioch as he's ministering there in that area. But now turn your attention particularly to Acts 11, 27 to 30, and skim that very quickly. Skim that very quickly, because you'll see here that Luke records a visit by Paul and Barnabas uh, to Judea, very possibly to Jerusalem. Now, as you scan that, you're going to notice some of the same details that we have up on the screen here behind us from Galatians chapter 2. I'll just fill those in now so that we can walk through them. You'll see that the location of Paul's story here in Acts 11 is that in Judea. Now, Judea, you say, that's not Jerusalem. Judea is like a state and Jerusalem's a city, okay? It's a province and a city. Jerusalem is in Judea. So he's going to Judea. He's in the same neighborhood. Is he in Jerusalem? Very likely, but we don't know that for a fact. You see, the occasion is a prophecy that they receive from a guy named Agabus. So that's a revelation from God, is it not? I mean, there you go. Agabus has shown up and said there's going to be famine. And so that matches revelation. We would work with that very nicely. The name participants in the story are, on the one hand, Paul and Barnabas. And on the other side, the Judean side, simply the elders, don't know who, but that's just a catch-all term. The issue at hand in Acts is famine relief. The format isn't given because we're not told about any meetings, so there's no format really to discuss. And the result of the visit is that financial help is given to the poor. Now, as you simply compare these two visits, you'll see that there is some overlap and some differences between them, right? Uh, they both occur in roughly the same place, place, maybe exactly the same place, but we just don't know. Uh, the occasion that leads to their visit seems to be identical. Revelation, prophecy, that works nicely. Participants match. However, the issues in format are a little different. In one hand, you have circumcision, uh, circumcision for Gentiles. On the other hand, you have famine relief. You say, well, that can't be the same. Well, not necessarily, because while they're there for famine relief, maybe they had a private conversation about circumcision for Gentiles. So that doesn't necessarily, they don't contradict each other, is what I'm saying. They just may not say exactly the same thing. And the results are different, but again, that could depend on what's in focus. In Luke's account, he seems mainly focused on the point of the mission itself, which was to bring financial help to the poor. So he focuses on that. But if the Galatians 2 passage is the same, Paul is only focused on a private meeting. So he might look at it completely differently 
and that would explain why the two are different. So it is very possible that if we go back now to our timeline, these two events are one and the same. So what we read about in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 matches Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. However, it is equally possible that they are not the same and that Paul is not attempting to give a complete account of every time he went and set foot in in Jerusalem or in Judea here in Galatians, but is maybe only focusing on specific visits that matter for his purpose in Galatia. And if that's the case, then we need to move our timeline down a bit and add a few more details. As you can already tell, the next time that Paul visits Jerusalem is going to be found in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 29. So now look over in Acts 15, verse 1. And uh, since you did not do your homework assignment and read this in advance, and since I don't have time to read it to you, I want you to skim through this, and I will point out specific details that I want you to notice as you are skimming. For example, I want you to notice in verse 1, Acts 15, that the problem is that some men had come from Judea teaching that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. So they have left Judea, they've gone to Antioch, and this is what they're teaching Notice that in the ensuing dispute, verse 2, Paul, Barnabas, and some others are appointed. This is our term, though we don't know how they're appointed. We don't know what is leading up to this appointment of, of this decision to send them, but they're appointed to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders. Notice in verse 4, when they get to Jerusalem, Luke records a meeting between Paul and his traveling party and the apostles and elders Notice in verse 5 that while this meeting is going on, some people who uh, Luke describes as being a part of the Pharisee party who claim to be believers, they, they rise up and declare, quote, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, notice in verse 6 that it's not clear if verse 6 is recording a new part of the same meeting or if we switch to a completely different meeting. There's some confusion here. Four and five are one meeting to themselves, and six and following are a different meeting. Maybe they're the same, but maybe they're different. Just recognize that for a moment. Jump all the way down to verse 19, and notice that after they've talked about it and they've, they're coming to a decision about what they should do, the decision is not to trouble the Gentiles with circumcision in the Old Testament law. Wait a minute. Have we heard the word trouble somewhere else so far? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Sounds familiar to me. Notice that beginning in verse 23, Luke begins recording a letter that is written by the, this council to the churches in Antioch and elsewhere so they can know the decision uh, in the situation. Notice in verse 24 that apparently uh, the false teachers who were troubling, there's our word again, the believers in Antioch, that they may have come from the Jerusalem church and may have even claimed to be representing the apostles there in Jerusalem. You see that in verse 24? And then finally, notice the reference in verses 25 and 26 of the apostles calling Paul and Barnabas beloved and, and, and commending them in their ministry. Okay, Did you see all that? I know that was really quick. It's because you didn't read and I had to do it. So no, that's not why at all. Did you see all those details? If I come back to our chart now and fill in the details, notice what we get. The location in the Acts 15 section, definitely Jerusalem. No question about that. The occasion for this meeting are these false teachers who have come from Judea 
and who may be saying that they represent the apostles in their new teaching. And so Paul and Barnabas are appointed, Paul and Barnabas and others are appointed by some means, we don't know what, to go sort this thing out. Uh, the named participants in the story are, on the one hand, Paul, Barnabas, and some others. On the other hand, we have the apostles and elders. The issue is circumcision and uh, uh, for Gentiles, obedience to the Old Testament law for Gentiles. The format seems at the very least to be a public meeting from verse 6 all the way through verse 21, but there may be a reference to like a pre-meeting in verses 4 and 5, but we'll just kind of leave that alone for a moment because that's not certain. And the result of the visit is that the apostles and elders affirm Paul's ministry, Paul and Barnabas's ministry. Uh, they issue a decision to make it clear that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. All right, that's all data right there. That's just pure going through like the text and just trying to understand what's going on. And again, as I said last week, part of why I'm doing this is to try to give you a model or an example of when you're sitting down to study and you're trying to ask questions, what are the things you should be looking for? How should you be piecing the scriptures together in order to understand them? This gives you at least an example of that. But now, now we have to make a decision. Does the visit that Paul records in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 more closely match the Acts 11 visit or the Acts 15 visit? And honestly, it could be either depending on what is and is not recorded, right? I mean, the reality is I can't tell you for 100% certain it is A or B. It is this or that. Nobody can. People disagree with this. They look at it. Uh, I mean, just at surface level, the Acts 15 passage seems to have more going for it, does it not? I mean, there seems to be more overlap in that one, but, but even there, there's some questions. And just because the Acts 11 passage doesn't have all the same details included doesn't mean that all that stuff didn't happen and it just wasn't written down the same way. This is one of those cases where an argument from silence doesn't help you or hurt you either way you go. So, so which is it? Well, I can only give you my opinion and I must note that, uh, at least in terms of the people that I was reading and studying through over the past couple of weeks, I seem to be in a minority position, not majorly in the minority. That didn't make any sense. But anyway, you know what I mean. But if you disagree with me, you'll be at least in good company. There are smarter people than I who think I'm wrong about this. But here's what I think. I think Galatians 2, 1 through 10 correlates with Acts 15, 1 through 29, not the Acts 11 passage. Now, if that surprises you that that's the minority opinion, I could take the next three hours and try to walk us through why that's the case. And with no uh, agreement on that, I will not. I I'll just simply say that, you know, when I look at all the evidence, when I base it on the Galatians timeline and I look at the Acts timeline, when I look at what's going on in the context of Galatians, when I look at what's going on in the context of Acts, I find it very, very difficult to believe that Paul would have addressed all of these questions and issues with the Jerusalem leaders in Acts 11, only to turn around just a few, a short time later, I'm not exactly sure how long, but it have been a very short time later in Acts 15 and do it all again. And so as I go back one last time to our timeline, I would fit it all in like this. I do not think that Paul recorded his second visit to Jerusalem or Judea in the book of Galatians. I don't think, for whatever reason, I don't know why, maybe, maybe he didn't go to Jerusalem. Maybe he went to some other part of Judea and so it kind of didn't matter. Or maybe he was in Jerusalem, but he didn't talk to anybody. Nothing happened. He just sort of dropped off the money and ran. He was busy, had to get home, you know, kind of thing. Whatever, he doesn't visit it or, or, or record it, excuse me. 
I think after that visit sometime, he leaves Antioch for his first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. You see, that's not recorded in Galatians, but that's because the Galatians are the story. He's writing to them because they are the outcome of that visit. He doesn't need to tell them about his work amongst them. They already know it. And sometime after that, I think false teachers come from Judea saying the Gentiles have to be circumcised, keep the law, very possibly uh, claiming to represent the apostles. And so Paul and Barnabas leave for a third visit to Jerusalem. This is where they meet with the apostles, these people of influence, get an answer to their question, and then return to Antioch to announce the verdict. Does that seem to at least make sense within the larger picture of everything we're seeing in Galatians and everything we're seeing in uh, the book of Acts? I I hope so. Now, hopefully... At the, very, at the very least, you can now see how walking through the chronology itself actually helps you get an understanding of what's going on here in these churches. I mean, just based on the timeline, a picture is beginning to emerge. It seems to me that it is very possible that a group of Jews who, like Paul, had once been a part of the Pharisees, had at some point claimed to become believers in Jesus— And yet sometime after that, as they are thinking about or living out the implications of the gospel of grace, they turn away from this and begin advocating the necessity of Gentiles being circumcised and keeping the Old Testament law in order to truly be saved. And a number of these people we see in Acts decide to become missionaries of this new gospel that they're preaching. And so they go out as far as Antioch, at least with their message. And when they arrive, they may have very well been claiming to represent the Jerusalem apostles with this new gospel, which think about it, if you're a a first century Christian and people show up and say, hi, we're from Jerusalem, I'm representing Peter, and we have a correction to make to the gospel. Do you not think that would trouble you and cause questions and, and become a major issue that has to be addressed? Furthermore, I think it's possible that either these people, these missionaries of this false gospel, or at least their message may have made its way all the way into the Galatian cities where some people no longer wanting to experience the persecution and the antagonism that they have been experiencing at the hands of the unbelieving Jews embrace and proclaim this new gospel, thus trying to make it more palatable and popular amongst the unbelieving Jewish community. And to do this, they pit Paul against the supposed message of these Jerusalem apostles saying, look what they're saying. These people who are the pillars say this. We can't believe Paul. Paul's not one of them. Paul's not this. Paul's not that. Forget Paul. Forget his message. Let's go with this new gospel instead. That sound plausible to you? Does it seem to fit all the details together, at least as we've seen them so far? I think so. I hope so. And, and, you know, as we think about that, and we're going to tie this all together next week, finally, but as we, as we think about this, what you're seeing is the potential destruction of a church going on, of people who are being tempted to walk away from the gospel that they had at one point proclaimed and said they believed. And I would like to say to you, well, that's just something from the past. People today don't, you know, that doesn't happen with us. No one at Cornerstone is ever going to walk away from the gospel. That'll, that's just a first century thing, not, not for us, but I know that's not the case. You see, the Galatians' hearts were no more prone to wander than are our own hearts. And so the warning of the writer of Hebrews is no less applicable to us in our day as it was to the people of the first century, whether they're in Galatia or elsewhere. The writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an 
evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, this isn't something that we like to think about or talk about very often as, as believers. This possibility that there are people that we know and love who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who could someday show that they never were. They could walk away from the faith, abandon the gospel as they have claimed to believe it in the past. So we don't like to think about this, but folks, I just would remind you, this is not just a warning for the first century. It's a warning for today. It's not just a warning for the Galatian churches or the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. This is a warning for Cornerstone that our hearts can be drawn away from the truth of the gospel. And so he says here, we have to take care. And specifically, he tells us to do two things. First, we have a command to guard one another. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Don't wait till tomorrow. You do it today. Exhort one another today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a responsibility to guard each other. Spouses guarding one another, parents guarding children, children guarding parents, friends guarding friends, believers guarding believers. This is what Paul and Barnabas and the leaders of the church in Antioch do when these false teachers come to town. They don't sit back and go, oh, well, I hope it works out and our people don't, <laughs> don't fall for this. They take action. They begin to actively guard the Christians there in Antioch, and, and we have a responsibility to do the same. And then second, we have a command to guard ourselves and to persevere. He says, for we have come to share in Christ. Notice the certainty. We have come. It has happened. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, we have to persevere in our faith. You know, on the one hand, we wholeheartedly believe that God, by his spirit, seals and preserves us, preserves all those who are truly his. And yet, on the other hand, we believe that we have a responsibility to persevere in our faith, to hold firm and fast in it to the very end, to not let any other confidence come and take away our confidence in Christ alone. To not let any other hope come and replace the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. Folks, we only have one confidence, and we can only have one confidence, and that is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And we're told to guard that, to hold it firm, to persevere to the very end. And so, until next Sunday, I exhort you, guard yourselves, guard your confidence, and guard one another until, if the Lord wills, we can meet again, walk through this text one more time, and bring all of our thoughts finally together to get a really clear understanding of exactly what is happening here in the book of Galatians. Will you bow your head with me? Jesus, we recognize that, that the Galatian situation is no different than our own. And while we would hope that very few, if any of us, would ever be drawn away by a false gospel, the reality is that this danger is real. That there are false gospels all around us that would call us to put our confidence in this or our hope in that. But we must stand firm. We must persevere. We must guard ourselves and we must guard one another. And I pray, Lord, that you will work in us to do that, that we will be committed to the truth of the gospel, that we will fight for and defend the purity of the gospel no matter what as we work through the book of Galatians here. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.